Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Previously on There Goes the Neighborhood. The city actually has been in what is legally known as a housing emergency for decades. It is the most ambitious, broadest, strongest housing plan of its kind in the country. A rezoning is when the city changes the rules about what can get built where. In Brooklyn, over the last five years, you know, depending on the neighborhood, we're seeing 20% returns year over year. For developers, it is worth building housing priced for that higher group because the ultimate payoff is going to be that much greater. The lines are created by the real estate industry. That's the marketing tool. So what this plan does is if you're in a rezoned area, you have to build affordable housing as part of it. And if no one in your family has ever owned, it's hard to understand what it means to own. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. So New York City has an affordable housing shortage. But at the same time, money's pouring in from all over the world to buy high-end real estate here because of the huge return on investment. Perfect Storm does not do justice to the description for what's going on. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine. And my WNYC colleagues and I have explored the nuts and bolts of this gentrification thing. But we also want to consider how it feels. We know historically there has been tension when newcomers come into a neighborhood. Turf wars have erupted in this city and other places around the country for a long time. New owners and residents stake a claim, and mistrust is sown. Jared Marcel is a senior at Brooklyn College studying broadcast journalism. He and his friend Tyrone Watts are lifelong residents of Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Listen to them describe how they navigate around the growing number of white neighbors they see. For example, if it's late at night and I'm going to the corner store to buy me an aloe juice or a bag of chips or something, you know what I'm saying? Let's say I'm walking behind a white lady. I'll slow down. Word. I think that too when I'm walking past them. I watch for certain things. Watch for them to clutch their purse. I slow down. I slow down. I, I don't want them to scream and yeah, the cops like, come attacking me. Yeah, like, I don't feel safe. And it can be a quick jump from unsafe to grave danger. I don't even want to put on my hood anymore, yo. You don't want to end up like Trayvon no, Mars. Yeah, pretty much, bro. The fact is, it's the 21st century in America, and you can still be killed because of your skin color, your choice of clothes, your physical presence. All of that is viewed as a threat. But Trayvon Martin was only the beginning of a larger public awareness of the way in which black and brown people are often perceived as dangerous, yet end up being the victim. Before we head into Williamsburg, a place that has come to represent the gentrification endgame maybe more than any other neighborhood in Brooklyn, Let's go across the country to the Bay Area of California. Because if there is any place that rivals Williamsburg as the face of gentrification, it's there. Where the fight over who belongs and who does not has, in some cases, turned lethal. Alex Nieto stopped at Bernal Heights Park to have a burrito and watch the sunset. He carried a taser on his belt for his security job at a San Francisco nightclub. Someone mistook his taser for a gun and called 911. The gun is visible? Yeah. When police arrived, they spotted Nieto about 100 feet away. Police fired 48 bullets at Nieto, who died in minutes. 
I think one of the really telling things about this case um, is that Alex was looked at as a foreigner in his own neighborhood. To tell this story, I'm joined in the studio by Jamila King. Jamila is a senior staff writer at Mike.com and a Bay Area native who writes about race and culture. And also with me is my WNYC colleague, Rebecca Carroll. First, can you tell us a little bit about the Bernal Heights neighborhood? So Bernal Heights uh, sort of sits right on top of the Mission District. Um, It's a historically Latino neighborhood. And I guess it's known mostly for the park that's in it, which is gorgeous. Historically, they've gone up there. They've had birthday parties. They've just kicked it with friends. Um, But increasingly, it's a place where you go walk your dog and go jogging. So when you say where you go walk your dog, who's you? White folks. The white folks who have moved into Bernal Heights and the mission in droves, not just in the past 10 years, but in the past 20, 30 years. So what happened was he was actually on his way to work. He was working security and he had a taser. He had a bag of chips. And one of the dog walkers' dogs came and tried to eat his chips. Alex Nieto, you know, he gets into this altercation. Bystanders see the taser and they don't know that it's a taser. They think it's a gun. And so they call police. So what we're seeing here is this clash of cultures that turns deadly. Can you give us a snapshot of what was the Bay that you loved so much? So when I was a kid, my experience with the Bay and with spaces like Bernal Heights Park, you'd have a bunch of friends that you'd go to the park with. You'd have your mother, you'd have your aunties, you'd have your mother's friends, you'd have the neighbor down the street that you don't really like, but you kick it with anyway. (laughs) You have music, you have barbecue, you might park your car on the park and then the police come and tell you can't do that. I think what Alex's story sort of gets at is he looked like a guy from the mission, right? He did not look like a techie, right? So he was wearing his fitted 49ers cap. He was wearing his big 49ers jacket. He was dressed like a dude from the mission dresses. White people looked at him and thought that he was threatening because of how he looked. I mean, would you argue that the way that he looked was almost more threatening than the actual taser gun? Absolutely. Even if he was a gang member, that doesn't mean that he was going to pull a gun out in the middle of a park and shoot people. And that, I think, is also really important to talk about, which is not only does the value of the neighborhood change, but the values change. Does this have to be? Do you think there is a way in which the black and brown bay that you remember is somehow reconcilable with the tech culture that is there now. Especially in San Francisco, now in New York, this has been happening for almost two generations. So I think you do see a certain level of getting along. What I do think you see is slowly the culture and the character of that neighborhood is stripped away and you have folks who just feel like they're foreigners in the neighborhood. Do you find now some years later as it continues to change that you are changing as well? I am a lot more aware now of how I look in my neighborhood. I'm much more aware of how I speak, who I speak to, what I wear. But I also know that I am still of the neighborhood. So I can tell these folks stuff about the neighborhood that they would never know otherwise. But I usually don't want to. And this is something familiar to anyone who has lived through the experience of having their community change dramatically. The emotional landscape and hidden markers, the things that newcomers weren't part of, these things feel like all that's left of what used to be, and all that makes you feel like you are still part of something, even when you are reminded at every turn that you are not. Back here in Brooklyn, that sense of who belongs and who does not echoes what Jamila was saying about her old neighborhood. It's an exclusion by design that you only find in the detail. And there's no better place to look at those details than Williamsburg. Rebecca takes us there. I've lived in Brooklyn for 20 years. 
for the past 12 in Williamsburg with my husband and son. We are a mixed-race family. I am black, my husband is white, and our 10-year-old son identifies as black and biracial. We live on the historically Hispanic and Latino south side of the neighborhood, where there's still a strongish community. But I'd say it's about two key foods in a sea town away from becoming the north side's Bedford Avenue, that hyper-freeway of Williamsburg that now attracts tourists from all over the world every single weekend. Just ask George Weld, who opened a restaurant called Egg in 2005. After... Maybe the second year we were there, tour buses started to come and drop people off. My block used to be almost entirely Puerto Rican and Dominican. They came to the neighborhood to be part of the industrial workforce in the nearby factories. Then it was the first major rezoning of a neighborhood under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. To be sure, other neighborhoods were gentrifying and gentrified before anyone under 30 had ever even heard of the Bedford Avenue stop on the L train. But it's that factory town that once provided close to 100,000 manufacturing jobs to immigrants, turned gritty industrial artist complex, turned Bloomberg's playground for development. Our rezoning of Greenpoint Williamsburg alone will create 49 acres of new parks and more than 7,000 units of housing in a now desolate area. We're relying heavily on such former industrial sites to provide housing for New Yorkers, especially affordable housing. Well, that didn't happen. Now, it's more than half new young white tenants, not to mention the many French restaurants and Vietnamese noodle bars that have popped up in the last decade. Perhaps this was the Bloomberg vision, a hamlet on the East River overlooking Manhattan, but it has come to represent the Brooklyn brand with its rose-hip scones, bespoke butcher shops, and bean-to-bar chocolate shops like Mass Brothers. Cocoa beans are much like um, wines from different places or grapes from different places. Based on the terroir of where they're grown, the, each bean will taste very different. So a bean from Madagascar is going There's to taste very There's a lot that's funny about it, actually, in an overly self-serious kind of way. Last time I was in Williamsburg, I saw a woman in her 20s, very cute white girl, hair in dreads, sitting on a fire hydrant knitting, and on either side of her, there were tourists taking her picture. And there you have it. It's a satirist dream. That's Henry Alford. He's a Manhattan-based writer and humorist. We talked in his sun-dappled office where he writes satirical pieces for a bunch of different publications. A few years ago, he wrote a pretty memorable piece for the New York Times in an effort to try to understand gentrification culture in Brooklyn by way of its hipster ambassadors. Not surprisingly, he started his research in Williamsburg, where he quickly discovered that being a hipster meant, in large part, not identifying as one. To people in their 20s, apparently being called hipster by the New York Times, it's very pejorative for them. Henry is not in his 20s, and that seems like a really important part of the whole equation. I am 54 years old. If you called me a hipster, I would kiss you. To be fair, Henry's portrait was not entirely glowing. What he painted was a carefully curated demographic of young single people who are deeply invested in a particular kind of aesthetic, mostly with money to spend in order to maintain it. A demographic that also makes a very clear statement about exclusion and inclusion without actually saying anything at all. You don't think of people of color when you hear the word hipster. And even though Williamsburg has seen a small influx of black people in the past decade, according to the Census Bureau, the neighborhood has lost one quarter of its once predominant Latino population with a steady gain in white residents who now make up roughly 75%. It's definitely peak gentrification. The beards, the man buns, the pickles. 
I saw on a shelf in a barber shop in Williamsburg a product called beard oil. Is this to reduce facial squeaking? I mean, what is that? And, you know, to boot, it costs like 30 bucks an ounce. So, you know, the commodification of hipsterism is happening at a price point that the people you're commodifying probably can't afford. To me, that feels like exclusion. When I walk around Williamsburg, I admit it, I do look out for other black people. And that's how I met James. So you said you moved here. Yeah. For the diversity. Yeah. So you feel like when you walk the sidewalks, you see diversity. Yeah. Where do you get your hair cut? Oh, I get it in the hood. They don't cut hair over here. Seriously. (laughs) And see, I know how that feels. There's not a black person in Williamsburg, in Brooklyn, in the country who doesn't have to think ahead about where we get our hair done. It's especially annoying given how hair-centric Brooklyn has become. I mean, this guy was sort of like in my face. He tried to touch my hair. I told him not to. That's Akilah Hughes. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves in this story. I am a writer and comedian, originally from Cincinnati, and I now live in Brooklyn, New York. And I make videos about social commentary and dating and being in your 20s and sort of like the irreverent voice (laughs) that everybody's got going right now. So you had an incident that is not funny. Um, So this was actually Halloween night. Uh, It was a friend of mine's birthday. She was celebrating with a whole group. After a night of bar hopping around Brooklyn, they found a great party on the north side of Williamsburg, and when it started to wind down, a few of her friends wanted to keep going, so they decided to stay in the neighborhood. It just made sense, and it didn't feel like too strange of a decision at the time. And it shouldn't have. She's a young black woman who was out with a mixed-race group of friends in what is considered the hippest neighborhood in Brooklyn. If you're in a diverse group of people, a lot of times you feel safer than you are. This is with my girlfriend Lyle, my friend Vlad, and her friend Brittany. Brittany's black, Lyle's Puerto Rican, Lyle's a blonde white girl. One thing about Williamsburg is that there is no shortage of bars, and so there's bound to be at least one with a kind of sketchy vibe. That's the one Akila and her friends managed to single out on this Halloween night. And there was a guy there wearing an Afro wig and, like, a baby diaper. It felt like a very hostile environment. The guy in the baby diaper started to get a little too aggressive, so they decided to leave. This guy was sort of like in my face. He tried to touch my hair. I told him not to. And we were just like, let's just get out of here. Like, it's almost 2 a.m. It's late now. Like, we don't need to stay out. They're walking toward Bedford Avenue to get a cab or the train. But before they reach the end of the block, they can hear the diaper guy get kicked out of the bar behind them. And a few minutes later, here comes that guy. And he said something to me that was just like, hey, bitch. And I was like, dude, you just got thrown out of a bar. Like, you might not want to mess with me. Like, you need to stop. And he ran up and punched me in the face. And my friend Vlad just, like, threw the guy off of me. So they were having a scuffle. I reached for my mace and started spraying at them. At this point, we're moving towards the front of Crown Victoria. The Crown Victoria is a pretty well-known bar in Williamsburg. And both Akilah and her friend Vlad are now bleeding. And they try to get ice. There were three security guards outside the bar. One of them appeared to try to help, where he was just, like, pushing them down the street. And it just escalated from there. That security guard, who had initially seemed helpful, quickly changed his tune and started to scold Akilah for not being careful enough with her mace. Suddenly, she became the perpetrator. He's like, you're not coming in here. He went and got a manager who basically berated me, saying, you know, you're really annoying. You probably do get punched in the face a lot. Our friend Brittany, she called the cops. It was just probably one of the worst nights of my life. So, Halloween night... 
Young people drinking, a perfect storm of trouble, right? Well, maybe in a different neighborhood. I was immediately aware of the fact that I'm a black girl who is, you know, in a fight in Williamsburg, and these white men don't want to help me. But I think what was more striking is that my blonde white friend, Lyle, you know, she couldn't believe it. I mean, she's like, guys, if we could all just calm down. And they were like, you need to back up, like, you and your thug friends. And she was like, whoa. So whether it's a bar or a sidewalk or a park bench, in a gentrified neighborhood, people of color often don't feel like they belong. And when we do show up, we are reminded that maybe we shouldn't have stayed. Which is why we're hearing so much anger and anxiety in the places that feel like they're on the front edge of the gentrification wave today. When we come back, we'll stay in Williamsburg and meet somebody who's fighting to stay, but it's unclear whether that would be a victory. We're still hearing from people about our podcast and the ways that gentrification impacts their lives. This week, we got a new song in our mailbox from the Lords of Liechtenstein called Where Dreams Go to Die. Brooklyn is changing, yeah, it's changing too fast. The good things in life, they never last. Well, I'm sitting here in the shadow of progress, just watching the years roll on. For I have lost all that was once mine. After Williamsburg was rezoned, the neighborhood went through tremendous change. It now has glass towers that demand some of the highest rents in New York City. For decades before that development arrived, Latin American immigrants, among others, created communities here. But when change came, they faced a set of realities that offer a cautionary tale for places like East New York, the places real estate investors are targeting now. All the rules that were supposed to protect those old residents, the tenants' rights, the rent regulations, the housing court, none of that proved sufficient. And even those who managed to hold on to their apartments may have lost their homes. All my friends, tenants, Mexicans, more Mexicans. Meet Tranquilina Alviar. She arrived when she was 21 years old in the winter of 1986. And soon she had a business selling used merchandise on the sidewalk. Books. Records, clothes, shoes, whatever. That used to be a much more common sight in New York City. She's that person on the sidewalk who gets you to stop for the rare vinyl or tattered first edition. Many of Tranquilina's goods were given to her by people seeking out the Salvation Army on Bedford and North 7th. She noticed the place was closed on Sundays, so she stood out front. And when people showed up with donations, she offered to take the boxes and bags. Sometimes she got more than she could handle. Sometimes, oh my God, too much, you know, big mess. I have in the street, the police come and, come on, what happened? You know, I say, yeah, yeah, I know. D.W. Gibson picks up the story from here. It didn't take her long to settle in at 193 Bedford, a stone's throw from the Salvation Army. She landed a one-bedroom apartment for $400 a month, and even better, it was rent-stabilized, so she knew she had rights. The city set minimal increases in her rent, and as long as she stayed current on her payments, the place was hers. During the week, she held down other jobs, cleaning apartments and offices, babysitting children and looking after seniors. For 25 years, she kept it going at 193 Bedford. Then in 2011, Reno Capital bought the building for $4.5 million. The company made it clear it wanted to completely renovate the property. In order to do so, 
They wanted everybody out. And so they started paying tenants to leave. Once a rent-stabilized apartment is empty, there are all kinds of ways to make more money off of it. The rent goes up 20% right out of the gate with what's known as a vacancy increase. And when improvements are made, a portion of those expenses, which are self-reported to the state, can be passed on to the tenants. Once an apartment's rent hits $2,700, it can be taken out of the rent stabilization program completely and rented at market rate. I talked with a guy, a rich man, you know, and he said, I give you 17, this is a lot of money. But Trancolina was firm. Even for $17,000, she didn't want to move. Over the next couple of weeks, he continued to pursue Trancolina. He donated by me two, three suits. Did you sell them? Yeah. Good money? Uh, me, I sell them for maybe for cheap. <laughs> he even upped his offer to $40,000. Say, no, I know, I know when to move. Trinkalina was smart enough to know that $40,000 would not go very far in this real estate market. She had something more valuable, a lease in her name in a rent-stabilized building. In 25 years, her rent had increased to $700. So she held out at 193 Bedford. And that was becoming more difficult because by the summer of 2011, Reno Capital was already renovating the hallways and emptied apartments. Trancolina was living in a construction zone. Everything destroyed, you know. A lot of dusting, a lot of garbage, uh, demolition, like a demolition. Then one day, Trancolina came home from work and couldn't get into the building. I don't know how many days passed, and then changed the lock downstairs. She knew she needed a lawyer, and fast. She found one in Shaker Krishnan of Brooklyn Legal Services Corporation A. He's the director of a program called Preserving Affordable Housing. It's not about buyouts. It's not about you know relocating temporarily while work is done in a building. A home is a home is a home. Shaker's well acquainted with a range of practices used to get rid of unwanted tenants. I mentioned Monica Bailey to him, the woman we met in episode one who had her hot water cut off in the middle of winter. I wish I could say that was an outlier, and it is absolutely not. He says he gets those calls all the time. My services are shut off. The building is unlivable. What do I do? Because, sadly, that is the most unprotected situation a tenant can be in. Because then you have to get every single government agency to work together to restore services. And even if city agencies are successfully navigated, it doesn't necessarily mean that the lights will come back on or the hot water will run again. That's because some landlords are taking even more drastic action. I will destroy my building so badly overnight that the tenants en masse in the building are forced out. Then I will renovate that destroyed building, turn it into a luxury market rate building, and then sell or rent the apartments there. And if I don't get caught for that, why not do it? Because the flip side is you get so much more money. Now we see whole buildings destroyed overnight to provoke what's called a vacate order from city government. And in August, that's exactly what happened to Trancolino. A city inspector paid a visit to 193 Bedford, saw the hazardous conditions, and issued a vacate order. Trancolina had to leave immediately. She only had a few hours to remove her belongings from her apartment, so she called her nephew, Danny, who hustled in from Coney Island. As soon as possible, we moved whatever, saved whatever things we could from, from the streets. Danny let Trancolina move in with him. And so for two years, he watched his aunt cope with her upended life. It was shocking. She went through a, a shock, you know. Finally, in August of 2013, an order came down. 
The good news? Shaker had won the case. The judge said Trancolina could move back into her apartment. The bad news? While she'd been fighting in court, Reno Capital finished renovations and rented the apartment to someone else for $2,900, more than four times the $700 Trancolina was paying. And so it was back to Danny's apartment in Coney Island, back to the long subway rides to clean apartments in Manhattan, and yes, back to housing court. Ten more months of briefs and adjournments and hearings. And in June of 2014, the court ordered the new tenant to leave the apartment. It took six months of wrangling and the threat of a removal by the city marshal to make it happen. But finally, on December 22, 2014, Trankalina moved back into her apartment. Nothing felt the same. Like, I think maybe they come in and they're going to put me out again or something. You know, I'm feeling very bad. You know, when the first night I'm sleeping here, you know, the yes, you know, memories. I don't know, many things I lose. Pictures for my children. I live in me. You know, this memory is for me more important, you know. Trancolina still meets other Mexicans, but they don't live in the neighborhood. They can't afford it. They're commuting from farther out in Brooklyn and Queens to work in the Williamsburg sprawl of restaurants and bars. Her new neighbors are mostly younger, mostly white. Trancolina doesn't have much interaction with them. Used to say hello, that's it. Good morning, whatever. More than a year after her return... Trancolina is still getting used to living in a brand new world. As Shaker stands in the hallway alongside his client, talking about the last few years, there is little sense of victory. This is also a story of displacement, that even though we've won in court and there's no question that we will continue to fight and be victorious in this battle, that there is still a lot that's also lost too. And Trancolina's story is not over. Did you catch that last bit that Shaker slipped in there? We will continue to fight. That's because Reno Capital has taken Trinkalina back to court. I called and emailed the building manager, but got no response. It's part of a larger litigation they're bringing to say the apartment has been so substantially rehabilitated that it is no longer a rent-stabilized apartment, and that Trinkalina is not a tenant here. Just recently, a court decision confirmed that her apartment is rent-stabilized, and she is the lawful tenant. Of course, the battle will rage on. Reno Capital has already filed an appeal. But get this. The decision also stated that because Reno Capital received tax abatements intended for buildings with rent-stabilized apartments, all of the units in 193 Bedford, including those currently rented at market rate, should be rent-stabilized. Soon, all of Trancolina's neighbors who are paying somewhere around $3,000 a month might have their rent slashed in half. Who knows? She might even get a few dinner invites. Trinkalina looks across the street where the Salvation Army used to be. The empty lot sold for $36 million last year. The intersection feels different to her. Everything is different. Not my life never gonna seem like before. Still, Trinkalina could be seen as a winner. She has a renovated place in a desirable neighborhood, which is more than most of Shaker's clients can say. He says when a building is shared between tenants and rent-stabilized units and others paying market rate, there is often a clear divide between the two groups. Half the building will be re- refurbished, brand new apartments, countertops, kitchens, everything. And our clients' apartments, meanwhile, have huge leaks, rats, mold, 
two separate supers, one for the new hipster market rate tenants coming in, one for the low-income non-white tenants. Wait, wow. So there's literally two separate superintendents. Absolutely. I mean, it's illegal. It's, a viol- it's not just a violation of rent stabilization laws, these conditions. It's a violation of fair housing laws. But it is happening over and over again. And uh, it's the division within buildings based on race and uh, economics is, is also very striking. So I get a guy. I'm a white guy that moves into the building. I get one phone number. Hey, this is the guy you call. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's already been there has a different phone number. It's like that. Exactly, exactly. And if one of our clients calls the other super, they will get responses like, we're not your super. Uh, you know, you should be calling the other super who speaks Spanish instead for services, but we don't. Wow, we don't and that's how it's either. couched. It's about language. Or it's Ex- about- exactly. It's exactly, wow. exactly. Shaker is using New York City's tough tenant laws to protect his rental clients. But what happens to homeowners who are in peril? Next week, we talk deed fraud and foreclosure court. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by Casey Means with additional recording from Anna Hyatt. Our researcher is me, Sean Carlson. Janet Babin and Bridget Bergen contributed recordings to this episode. Terrence Blanchard composed our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Kevin France, Frank Reynolds, and Annie Shields. D.W. Gibson, Jim O'Grady, Kai Wright, and Rebecca Carroll contributed to the reporting and producing of this episode. Our editor and executive producer is Karen Frillman. And before we go, have you started a conversation with a neighbor of a different race about gentrification? What happened? Call and tell us about your experience at one 646 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.